You're listening to Common Space, finding commonality through uncommon conversation. Hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Common Space. I am Julie, and I'm here with Michelle and Ginger Ann. Michelle, hi. Hello. Back on Zoom again. Back on Zoom. Hey, Ginger Ann. Hey, guys. And we have a really exciting guest here today. I'm going to let Michelle introduce Z to us. You have um, already a history with Z, Michelle, so I'll hand it over to you. Yeah, um, we go way back. I mean, how many years is this now? Since 2008, you know, was the end of the, the beginning era. So 2006, 2008, we met when Z and my husband were in business school together. And I'm just so thankful that you um, entertained my kind of attempt to reconnect and explore after some <laughs> Instagram stalking when I just saw what you were doing. I'm like, oh my gosh, this would be amazing if Z could have some time for us in her busy schedule. So thank you for being here. And let me first start just by telling a little bit about your business. And then we want to hear from you, Z. Um, your business is called Reclaiming Flow, and um, I'm just going to read a little bit from some notes here. Mindfulness and professional development for Black women and people of color. And so what I loved about this was I returned to work this year. I've been back in this world of professional development, but I loved specifically that your professional development was targeting Black women and people of color. And I was like, Bing! This is amazing. I need to hear more about this. So we chatted on the phone, and now you're here. So hey, Z. Hello, hello, hello. I am so happy to be here with you all today. Thank you for having me. Yes, of course. So we thought we'd start with a little just kind of intro, um, maybe a little bit kind of about your background and how you came to create this amazing business, and then we want to hear a little bit more about what you're doing. Yeah. So a little bit about just my life story. Um, I grew up in Washington, D.C. in the 90s during a time when D.C. wasn't as gentrified as it is right now. So it was like straight up dangerous. Mm -hmm. Um, D.C. was known as the murder capital of America. I lived in a predominantly African-American neighborhood. Um, And I also had the opportunity to get basically a full scholarship to a really, really fancy private school in the suburbs. And so for the majority of my life, I have been almost the only black person um, wherever I was. So, um, you know, recently, like I teach classes on imposter syndrome. And I was thinking back as I was teaching these classes, like when was the first time I experienced imposter syndrome? I was eight years old. It was the first day at this private all-girls school in the suburbs. Not only was I the only black person, but I was also the only poor person. I was the only person that took what I call the, my version of the BMW bus metro walk um, <laughs> to the school. Um, and, and, you know, I've always been treated differently. Um, you know, at that time, because I was the only black person, people didn't talk to me. I had no friends. No, like, I was like the girl um, at recess that was sitting by myself reading a book next in the playground because nobody would play with me. Um, And I got treated differently by teachers. I remember teachers would tell my parents, you know, Z shouldn't study that much. Like she's working too hard. Um, She shouldn't, she shouldn't even try to be in the advanced classes. So my parents had to fight for me to be in the advanced classes. Um, And then, you know, you're just treated differently in school, outside of the classroom. I remember in high school, um, a bunch of friends of mine, black friends from this private school, because they were in different grades. You know, there's, there isn't like, now, there is space for one or two of us in each year. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were kicked out of a mall um, in Washington, D.C. Um, because the security guards set, lied and told us that there was a rule that you couldn't be a minor and unaccompanied by an adult during school hours. And I didn't even think anything of it. I was like, the people in uniform said, right? But it's just been ongoing. And, and then, you know, I remember the guidance counselor at my school told me not to apply to Harvard. So P.S., I went to Harvard twice. I have an undergraduate <laughs> (laughs) degree in economics from Harvard. And, you know, Michelle, I met your husband at Harvard Business School, right? And even when I'm at some of these places, it's kind of challenging um, when there aren't that many people that look like me. I remember 
freshman year in college, I got into this advanced economics class that was based more in kind of multivariable calculus. And this girl that I met was really mad that she didn't get in. And she told me, you know, you're only here because they had quotas to meet, right? All right, so these, these things happen, mm -hmm. and even in the workplace, so I worked in tech for many years in Silicon Valley, and, you know, first day on a job, a boss says to me, I just want you to know I didn't hire you because you're black. Last day of a job, a CMO of a <sighs> company said to me, yeah, she said, how does it feel to know that the only thing people are talking about is that a black woman just quit? And I'm like, guys, I'm a person. <laughs> I am more than my blackness. Um, and so, you know, so many microaggressions happen at work. And, you know, what ended up happening to me is I just got so frustrated because even in Silicon Valley, I'll often just be the only woman in a room, right? I'm the only woman, period. So then like the only black person, always the only black woman. Um, and I just had enough. So I did quit. And I went to India and I did what I call the black girl version of eat, pray, love. And so I got my yoga teacher certification and I studied breath work. I'm a sound healer now with Tibetan singing bowls because I'm a violinist. And so the idea that you could heal with sound was so powerful. And you know, why professional development for black women and people of color? It's because there isn't anything for us. Even this is crazy. I yeah. mean, I'm just like, Wait, how is this not so widespread right now? Yes. Like, I'll give you an example. Um, authentic leadership. I've taken so many authentic leadership classes where a white person tells me that I need to be myself. Bring your authentic self to work. And I'm like, but I have to code switch for survival or I'll get fired. Mm -hmm. I have to straighten my hair for years because I was told that that's what it meant to be professional. Mm -hmm. um, and so these programs, basically what I teach is mindfulness to heal from these challenges that we as people of color face in the workplace. And so I have a class on mindfulness to heal from microaggressions at work, you know, like, like breathing techniques when somebody touches your hair or says something to you super offensive, which <sighs> happens, yes, a lot. Even at work? Oh my gosh. No, well, no. I've had people touch my hair. <laughs> really? I've had people touch my hair. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and I think what, if I can interrupt crazy. for a minute, Z, but um, what really was brought to life to me this year in my professional development was because like, I was like, oh, well, people touched my hair, you know, or someone got my name wrong. Not to, not to say what you just said, Julie, is not accurate, but I'm like, that happens to people mm -hmm. who are not black. But um, a really good friend of mine at school is like, yeah, but it's like every other day not mm -hmm. it happened one time in 2013 and mm -hmm. that's why i was like oh that is really annoying that's super annoying yeah it would really yeah. get to me so like, i think bringing, yeah. bringing attention to these microaggressions is not like well someone pronounced my name wrong one time or someone mm -hmm. said something insensitive to me one time it is the frequency mm -hmm. of how often this is happening that I was not aware of because it doesn't happen to me. And yeah. for people who are listening that may not even know what a microaggression is, Z, can you give us like the top five? I mean, I know that's kind of an arbitrary number, but, or just rattle off a few examples beyond, you know, including touching one's hair, someone's hair. Um, what are some microaggressions that yeah, I mean, microaggressions are when people act in a certain way or say something or do something, particularly because of your race or identity. So, um, you know, one of the things that's really annoying is people act surprised at my abilities. Oh my God, you're so articulate. How do you speak like that, right? Or, or they'll be like, you went to Harvard, right? Um, I'll, I'll give you another example. I was at a bar and I live in Colorado now and I was at like a restaurant bar in Boulder. This is pre-pandemic, obviously. I don't go mm -hmm. into that anymore. Um, and, uh, and, and there was like, I, I was with somebody who ran into his friends and it was a group of white women and they had like costume jewelry and things kind of just play celebrating somebody's birthday. Lovely, beautiful. And so they were like, oh, take one of these like, you know, hair things, like celebrate with us. I was like, cool. So I got like this barrette clip thing, stuck it in my hair. And, um, and then this one girl goes, she said, oh my God, how does that stay in your hair? And then before I could answer, this other girl says, 
and I, I need to demonstrate physically, but I'll tell you what I'm doing. It's because she got that black girl hair. So oh, for Lord. those of you that are listening, oh, she boy. moved her shoulders so like violently. It was kind of like, um, you know, Elaine's mm-hmm. dancing in Seinfeld. Like, <laughs> I was like, what is yeah. like, my, first of all, my shoulders don't do that. Second of all, it's because she got that black girl hair, mm-hmm. really. That right. is an example of a microaggression. And when that happens yeah. at work, it really sucks. But sometimes people's intentions mm. aren't even bad, right? So this one woman at work recently yeah. said to me, you know, when I see you, I don't see color. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, okay, uh-huh, so great. So I'm just like, am I invisible? Am right. I, is yeah. that you, what it is? You're blind. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Blind. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the intention versus impact. I mean, we've talked about this on the podcast before when we've been, you know, we talked about race previously, and it's the intention may not be negative, but the impact, right, of making that sort of like um, almost like that characterization of a stereotype um, and bringing that into her dealing with you or the, you know, pointing out that you're articulate because somehow that is a stretch for you. Um, you know, obviously I'm, I grew up Korean in a Korean American household and, um, people saying you speak English so good. You know, I got that all the time. Or like, you know, when I was giving you the example of touching my hair and calling me Pocahontas, wow, which is not even, (laughs) not even the world Uh as where I'm from, but it, yes, those little things where again, the intention is not to harm, but that over your lifetime or, you know, several lifetimes and several generations is it, it just keeps you in a place where you are not at an equal footing to everyone else. Yeah. And I, and I, one thing that you said that really stuck out that I want to like highlight is impact. Um, So if you look at the impact of chronic stress, like what are the symptoms of chronic stress? It very much aligns with the higher rates of these conditions in black people. High blood pressure. Medical studies now show that the higher rate of high blood pressure in African-Americans is directly related to discrimination. Diabetes. Oh my gosh. Accelerated aging. Okay. Okay. Martin Luther King, when he died, they did an autopsy of his body. He was 39 and they found that he had the heart of a 60 year old. So like, this is actually killing us slowly, like death by a thousand cuts. The impact is so real. And that's why I teach these classes, particularly using mindfulness, breathing techniques, because on the one hand, these, and you know, it's funny, Michelle, you were like, oh, but there are all these, you know, there are these DEI programs, diversity, equity, inclusion, Uh uh right? But for me, those are all for white people. Yeah. I love how you said that. Of course they are. Yes. And I can't wait. We as black people can't wait for white people to be less racist because we're going to die. I mean, even just COVID-19, right? Black people are dying at twice the rates as white Americans just from COVID-19, right? We're dying. We're facing two pandemics. One is COVID. The other is police brutality. We're dying twice the rate as white Americans from police brutality. And we're twice as likely of those people that are killed to be unarmed. And so these mindfulness techniques are ways to heal ourselves when terrible things happen to us, which they do. Like, um, Michelle, I actually don't know if I ever told you about this grocery store incident where I went to the- Yes, I read about it. You wrote about that. And I was just like, I can't even, I can't even believe this right now. But let's share it. Yeah. Yes, go ahead. So I will have to tell you that um, I get a receipt now and I'm really about the environment. So for me to get a receipt just makes me like, I I like cringe every time I say, yes, I want a receipt. And I asked for a receipt because of this thing that happened to me at a grocery store. Um, I went shopping. I was on a road trip, um, going camping through national parks and I was also moving. So my car was packed to the rim. And basically, uh, somebody at the grocery store called the police and said that I shoplifted. So I had a receipt. I spent $220 at this grocery store. And so I'm in the grocery store parking lot playing Tetris with my trunk because I had so much stuff in my car. And the sirens come, the car goes and like blocks, you know, like like in a dramatic fashion. And they're like, ma'am, did you purchase those groceries? 
And so I'm like, oh yeah, I did. Here's, here's the receipt. And then I proceeded to explain different vegetables to this officer because he was like, what's this? And I was like, that's a <laughs> an English cucumber. And so then oh, after they God. went through every item on the uh, list, they went go and looked at the security cameras. It was like back mm-hmm. and forth. I was there for like hours. And then it tur- they told me what they were looking for. Deli meat. Okay. So this is fascinating because I am a vegan. Mm-hmm. I'm a vegan. It's very hard to find deli meat in a vegan's car. Mm-hmm. And so all this to say that that caused me so much stress and so many tears. I cried so much because I can't even go to the grocery store. And then it was a whole like um, just negotiation and drama with the CEO and the executive team there because they were kind of just, they didn't take it that seriously. So this is, this is my life, which is why I need to breathe. That's why I went to India because I was like, well, I need tools to make myself feel better. And now, you know, I can face challenges, anything that comes my way because I have these tools. So did that happen before your trip to India? Yeah, that did happen before my trip to India. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you go to India and um, you have your eat, pray, love moment where you learn the mindfulness techniques and um, what the Tibetan um, symbols, is that what you called it? Tibetan singing bowls. Sing, singing bowls. Okay. And so, um, and yes, I've also seen videos of you playing the violin, which for me, music is just so spiritual and just kind of brings you to the present. So then how do you connect that back? You come back to the United States and then how do you connect that to, is it immediate that you're like, I'm starting my own business or do you return to corporate America thinking I have these techniques, let me go use yeah. them. So, you know, I, oh, do you want to say something? Well, I was just going to say, did you go to India with the intention of bringing these techniques back or was the intention just, I got to get out of here. I need something different for myself. And this is a journey I'm going to go on and see where it leads me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was the latter. So I, um, I needed to heal myself. Okay. I really needed to focus on my own personal healing because mm-hmm. I was overwhelmed with life. Okay. Um, and so, so, and then when I came back, um, I did start teaching classes. I started teaching meditation. I started teaching, doing sound baths, sound healing sessions. And I noticed that the people that were coming to my classes were all wealthy white women. And I was like, wow, this just like, I mean, you know, I love healing everybody, but there was something missing. And when I used to live in the Bay Area, there was a weekly evening, um, like a people of color meditation sit at this place um, called the East Bay Meditation Center. They're amazing. And, um, and, and when I got to Colorado, like Colorado is just really, really white. And and so when I was looking for places to meditate with black people, it didn't exist. (laughs) And so, so then I, you know, I created a monthly people of color meditation night. And then I, and then I just over time started. So I did rejoin corporate America. Well, first I was just teaching lots of people, but then I was like, I I should probably get a job um, because the economics of of teaching aren't amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, And, um, and then I realized that I felt so much better when I was teaching black people and people of color because they're the ones that need it more. Like everybody needs healing and everybody deserves to heal. And in fact, the name of my company is Reclaiming Flow. So if you aren't familiar with flow state, it's the optimal state of consciousness where you feel your best and perform at your best. And black people and people of color, they have more challenges to getting to flow state because of racism, because of systemic issues for generations where just it feels like sometimes stuff is just set up against us from the moment that we were born. And so I started to feel so much better when I was teaching people of color these tools. So no, I didn't have the intention to start a business. When I got back, I was like, these tools are amazing. They healed me. Like, wow, I feel so great. And then I was like, I feel this calling to share. And so I did share and I shared with everyone. And it's not to say that I don't teach everybody today. You know, you know, sometimes companies will be like, can you just do a mindfulness and self-care workshop for all of our employees, you know, or this kind of social club in Colorado asked me to do a sound healing for them. And I'll tell you, I've been in that building and I have never seen a person of color in that building, but beautiful humans. And I'm willing to do it. It's just in terms of the percentage of my time and my focus. Um, I'm really passionate about people of color healing. 
Yeah. And when you, I was going to ask, you mentioned companies and um, some of the other things you've done. Do you primarily focus on individuals then and and smaller organizations versus bigger companies and going into, like, I think your, your focus is not big companies and going into corporate America. Is that right? So actually, it's the opposite. So with Reclaiming Flow, um, I work with companies and usually larger companies, and they're either their diversity, equity, and inclusion offices, if they have them, um, (laughs) or their employee resource group. So usually, or, you know, some places call them the affinity group, but there might be the black one or the Mm -hmm. Latino one. Today, I gave a session for the differently abled um, employee resource group, right? So you don't even think about people that have um, conditions, right? That they can't do things as easily as you can. I had a conversation with a blind man recently and I was like, wow, like I, I was, and it was on zoom and I was like, oh, you can see as you spell my name and right. And then I had to think, Uh, oh, uh wait, can't see. Right. So I found myself in the opposite position, right. Of just not really being as like conscious, but definitely large companies. And the reason Mm -hmm. large is because small companies don't have any black people. Yeah. Well, and I was also going to ask small companies may not have those affinity groups or HR departments, even with the capabilities of doing that. Yes. Right. So, so I was going to ask maybe for you personally, the mindfulness practices, do you incorporate those on a daily basis or do you feel like once a week is effective? But is it kind of like an in the moment, like this just happened and here's how I get myself focused again? Or is it just more of a, if I'm able to maintain this certain level of mindfulness balanced with stress, I can handle those things? It is not once a week. Uh-huh. It is a daily practice. Uh-huh. I wake up every morning and I meditate and I write um, what's called morning pages. If you're familiar with this book called The Artist's Way, it's amazing. Yes. Everybody should yes. read this way and do the exercises. Um, but a part of that is morning pages where you just journal like three pages every morning. And I do that every morning because it is, it's almost like preventative. It's like, do you take your vitamins every day? Mm-hmm. Right. Do you sleep eight hours every day? And when you don't do that, that's when you're more prone to be triggered and affected. So there is a daily practice of just maintaining a level of like keeping it together. And then there are specific exercises that I do when I'm triggered, both either in the moment, right? Like somebody said, like, you know, an example of something that might happen at work. Um, and right now, actually, I'm in a pretty great situation, but like, I have been in situations where they just completely ignored what I'd say. Like, I would say something and everybody would ignore it. And then a white guy would say the exact same thing in different words and get applauded. And so then I'm just gonna be really angry. And historically, I would just be really angry and not say anything and hold it in. And you know, that causes cancer at the end of the day. Like over time, I talked about chronic stress. Um, and so now I have tools that I can use, like a breathwork technique to release anger when I get home or now during COVID, it's just when I turn off the Zoom meeting and I could do the breathwork technique to release the anger. Or in the moment, if somebody, oh, like police, if a police car pulls up next to me, because that's really, really scary uh, for me. I'm at a stoplight. Police car pulls up next to me. My heart rate goes up. I feel my whole body tense because I'm scared of the police. And um, with good reason, because of my personal history. And they're not pulling you over. They're just literally there. They're just literally there. And I get stressed out. And so I do this technique called belly breaths. And that is like the simplest technique where you just breathe and let your belly expand like a balloon to its full capacity. And that stimulates your parasympathetic nervous system. So if you have your sympathetic nervous system, that's your fight or flight, right? Your cortisol levels like shoot up. This is the opposite of that. It's calming. It's restorative. And so I do things in the moment when they happen. But then I also just have a baseline of taking my mindfulness vitamins, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So Z, you talked about the belly breaths and you were talking about some other breathing techniques that you do. What are some of the other techniques I'm very interested because I'm a parent of three small children um, and it's pandemic time. So I think just knowing some of those techniques would be useful. Yeah. Some of them are harder to explain, but I'll, I'll actually share one right now. That's very, very simple. And a lot of people might, you know, this one is more common. People might've heard of it. It's called the four, seven, eight breath. Has anybody heard of it? No, no. Okay. Where you like breathe in, hold it and then breathe out. 
It's true. And the numbers are for how long? Yeah. So you inhale for, actually, do y'all want to do it with me? Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. So sit up straight, back straight, just so you can get full lung capacity. And you inhale for four, three, two, one. Hold for seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Exhale for eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. And notice what your, how your shoulders, all of you, I can see you, your yes. shoulders came down on the it. exhale. So you just yeah. do that a few times, you know, and, and that's actually really amazing for anxiety. So if you're constantly worried about something, if you're stressed out, that four, seven, mm. eight breath, and especially during COVID, we're just worried that we might get COVID. <laughs> Yeah, like, right. Like, we I, were just talking about that. I saw a friend. I don't know. I took a calculated risk. Four, seven, eight breaths. And in fact, <laughs> these breathing techniques, some of them build your immune system, right? Hmm. So, um, so that's one. I guess what's another one that might be easy to explain without doubt? I love that one, though, Z, because that is something that I could even teach my children. Yes. You know, like it, even my youngest, who's just learning how to count, could probably, I could probably talk him through that. That's so amazing. Totally. And you can so easy to remember subtly during the day, you know, like some mm -hmm. of these that are the quick loud breaths would probably be a little obvious in a meeting, but like if you were <laughs> in the moment in the day, <gasps> you could get away with that and no one be like, what's, yeah. happening? what's happening over here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like I'll that. give you another one that you could do in a meeting so that nobody would know. This is like really simple. It's just an extra long exhale. So there is something about Ex and even try it right now. Just exhale longer wherever you are on the breath. Just like exhale for as long as you can. And that also stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system. So that one, nobody would even know you were doing it. Yeah. Okay. I love that. Down, so I don't, I don't forget. Um, so one I want to oh, go ahead, Julie. Well, one question. I jotted down a few things before we started recording today and just thinking about, um, you know, Z, I looked through your website, and when I think about flow, I mean, the first time I was introduced to the concept of flow was probably a few years ago when Oprah really started talking about it. You know, That's what I was going to say. Oprah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oprah, and Oprah introduced me to flow, and then, you know, she would interview people and talk about flow, and in all the times that I thought about flow, I never thought about race being something that would inhibit my ability to get into flow. And so once I started thinking about that, I just started thinking about all the areas in our society right now where people cannot get into a state of flow because of race or other things that are happening in, in our world right now and in, in the wow. culture. And so when I think about even things like education, Mm -hmm. and how um, children are treated in the education system, whether it be public or private. Um, you mentioned earlier um, uh, the police department, right, or um, anyone in that kind of a role, um, public services, government, and it just kept on snowballing, like the areas where we see so many different ways that people are struggling with each other, struggling to understand each other, and struggling to sort of elevate whatever they need to be doing past a certain point. And I thought about like how that's related to what you're talking about and what you're trying to do with people. It just really like kind of blew blockers. my mind. Mm -hmm. yes. Blockers. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. I mean, it's like people think about racism in a vacuum. And I think one of the challenges that people need to realize is that these things happen to us and then we have to show up. Like, like I'll give you an example. I played violin at a violin vigil for um, a guy named uh, Elijah McLean. He was a 23-year-old African-American man in Aurora, Colorado, who was a violinist. He played violin for the kittens at the rescue. Um, and he was unarmed walking home from the store. Um, and the videos are just very traumatizing where they like, sh like give him a shot of ketamine and like choke him to death. And, um, and, he, and he's, he's like, I love you. I love everyone. I'm a vegetarian. I would never kill a soul. Like his last words were so um, just, I don't know, it, it, it jar jarring and, and sad. And so there was a violin vigil um, for him at a park in Aurora, Colorado. 
that I went to, and I didn't go to any protests because I'm scared of the police, as I mentioned, but also I've been tear cast before by the police. So I was like, I don't want any more tear gas. Uh, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm, like, I'm with you all. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm just, I can't. And so I went to this violin vigil and then sure enough, the police showed up in riot gear um, and were shooting rubber bullets and spraying, you know, they, it wasn't tear gas. It was, what's the one that's one level less than tear gas, like pepper spray, <laughs> pepper oh spray God. bombs. Um, and I'm sprinting with my violin. And then I had to show up at work on a Monday morning, right? Like I had to show up to work and I snapped mm -hmm. with a white colleague. And then I, and because of my mindfulness practice, I caught myself and I said, oh, Actually, I'm really sorry. It's just this thing happened to me on Saturday and I'm still pretty shaken. So um, I didn't mean to snap at you. Um, I'm just, um, you know, it's Monday at 8 a.m. And, and it's kind of rough for me, right? Yeah. It's also interesting, Julie, you bring up, you know, you know, just about everything that touches on all these parts of society. And Z, you said something earlier about years and years of, you know, of, of anxiety and it just because i think about how like i unbeknownst to any of us we pass on anxieties to our children or vice versa like i know i have the same anxieties that my father has and i can see them in um my youngest daughter that she has for me and it's not even it's not even taught it's just like it's just inherent in their soul. It is so mm. bizarre. So I can't imagine like, you know, coming from a history of enslavement and all of these different, mm. um, sorry, I just hit something, uh, hardships, like how that like literally gets passed into your soul. Well, you and, and your genetics, it changes yeah. your genetics yeah. as well, which is so fascinating and horrifying at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I right. want to just share with you um, some, I guess, I'll, I'll like research and data around that. So there's an amazing book called It Didn't Start With You by Mark Wolin. And, um, and this general category is called epigenetics, right? And like family inherited trauma. So here, you know, an, an experiment, a research study was done where you have a bunch of baby mice and they're like born and they're in this cage. And, um, and they're playing and having a great time the first few days of their life. And then they put a cat hair, a single cat hair in the cage. And the baby mice froze, stopped playing completely, didn't play for a while. Like, I, think, I think it was a couple days. I could be wrong on the exact stats here, guys, but you know, mm -hmm. conceptually you understand. Um, and, and then eventually they slowly started to like move again and play with each other, but they never played to the extent that they did before that cat hair. So what does that say, right? That their ancestors, their DNA evolved to know to recognize danger for survival, right? At the end of the day, this is survival. And so similarly, and you are so right, that for black people, people of color, people that have had, you know, Native Americans, I mean, can you imagine how much stuff happened to our ancestors? And we carry that with us without even knowing and even more reason why these mindfulness techniques are important because we're just so easily triggered. Like I told you, the police officer right. didn't do anything to me, but he's just pulled up in a car next to me and I'm there. peeking out inside. Yeah. yeah, no kidding. Um, so, Z, other than breathing and meditating, what are some other techniques that you share with your clients in terms of how to deal with microaggressions, how to get past or maybe um, process those things to be able yeah. to get into flow? Yeah, um, well, I guess there are two. Th so there's a lot of writing exercises that are helpful. Um, but also there is one meditation exercise that it's like a framework that I will share with you right now. And it's called rain. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of it. But um, there's a a beautiful teacher named Tara Brock, who she preaches rain, but she didn't, she didn't invent it either. Like all these teachings have just been around for a long, long time. And it's like hard to, to trace it back to who, who invented this, though. I think rain does have an inventor. Rain, rain and R-A-I-N. Exactly. And okay. it's an acronym. R is Ooh, I love acronyms. <laughs> yes. Um, I also love two by twos. I was a management consultant. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So R is for recognize. So you have to recognize. So when something happens, something terrible happens, a microaggression, or maybe you just had a fight with your partner. R is for recognize. You need to recognize what you're feeling and name it. 
Like mm-hmm. name it. And it's not, I am angry. It's, I am experiencing anger because you are not your anger. Does that make sense? Whatever the, you mm-hmm. know. Naming yeah. the emotion, not feel anger. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. R for recognize. A for allow, because you might be like, I'm angry. And then you sweep it under because I'm not allowed to be angry or it's bad that I'm angry. You're like judging yourself. I'm not supposed to be angry. That's Mm -hmm. That's actually not helpful. That's like, you know, if you ignore something. So allowing it, A for allow, allow it to be there, right? Just, so it doesn't mean it's okay. It's just, it's just allowing this feeling. I is for investigate. So I don't know if you're familiar with somatic healing, somatic therapy, but we hold a lot of stress in the body, they say the issues are in the tissues, okay? And so, <laughs> so with that, the eye is investigate, where in the body am I feeling this? You know, something happens and you feel like you got punched in the gut, or I don't know about you, but sometimes when like something just is really like upsetting to me, like my throat just gets like stuck. And I'm like, I feel like there's a thing in my throat. So like where in the body, investigate where in the body. And then the N is for nurture. And so how can you nurture yourself, right? And there are many ways to nurture, but particularly as you think about this body part, one way that's really helpful, it's, so I'm also um, trained in Reiki. If you're familiar with Reiki, it's like an ancient Japanese technique, touch healing. And sometimes you can do Reiki from afar and not touch. But the point is that this is something that we actually know to do this when we're little. You know, if one of your kids falls and they hurt their knee, you know what they do immediately? They touch their knee and they hold it there, right? You know what I mean? Or wherever it is. And so if you take a hand and place it on the heart, on the belly, on the throat, and you just like hold it there gently, tender, that's nurturing and that can help heal. So it's not going to make all this go away, but it is a technique that is really helpful for healing. And you could do guided rain meditations, but also you could just take this framework and apply it when something happens. So that's, that's one. Um, yeah. There's some writing techniques also like, um, for imposter syndrome, for example. Um, I love to do an evidence-based writing exercise. So I don't know if you know this, but actually I have a test for you all. Pop quiz. (laughs) (laughs) What percentage of Americans um, would have experienced imposter syndrome in their life. Wait, can you first tell us about imposter syndrome? Define imposter syndrome. Oh. Yeah, so I was like, go over that. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, there are many, many definitions, but imposter syndrome is when you feel like you are a fake or a fraud and you feel like <laughs> even though despite that you're capable and despite evidence that you're capable, um, mm-hmm. you still feel... Like you're not, like you're a fraud, like you're going to be found out. And so, um, and so this happens to a lot of people, like a lot of people, and and that's when the pop quiz comes. Um, But what happens then is that you don't, like there are a lot of impacts. You might not um, think you're good enough. You might not apply for a job because you think I'm not worthy. You might not speak up in a meeting. I was quiet in so many meetings for so long because I didn't think that I was smart enough. You know, the only woman in a, in a room in Silicon Valley with a bunch of tech bros that are like, you know, like talking like without any data, without any data, they're just like talking like they're so confident. And meanwhile, I'm like, I gotta, I gotta do the research and get the data and then do some analysis. And then after I'm done, I'm going to speak, right? Like that. So that, that is imposter syndrome. Okay. So, so what's the percentage so yeah, my, of all Americans? Yeah. I'm going to say 80. Okay. I think Ooh. 60. Okay. Ooh. I was going to go with 65. <laughs> all right. The answer, my friends, is 70%. Ooh. 70%. And this isn't a survey, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> like the price is right. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, who's this is like self saying, somebody saying, yes, they did, right? But I think right. people don't even admit it, right? Right. Um, That's like, an ego thing. Nobody wants to admit it. Exactly. Well, I mean, so, I'll admit it. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> And, and I think that for people of color, it's even worse in terms of because there's so many things that would influence that. Like the fact that somebody yeah. told me that they didn't hire me because I was black. I'm like, I went to Harvard twice. Yeah. I never thought that you hired me because I was black. I thought you hired me because my resume was kick-ass. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah. So. Yes. Yeah, so then that flips your ego. And then you're like, well, crap. Now I'm going to like have to really. Yeah. Like now what, what is good enough then? Yeah. Exactly. Right? Such a self-doubting moment. Mm-hmm. 
And, and I would guess, you know, on average, women would experience this more than men. Mm-hmm. And then I, I would guess on average, women of color are going to experience it more often than Yeah, than anyone. Yeah, I mean, this is so fascinating to me because I teach an all-girls class and I just adore them. And um, (laughs) one issue is just confidence. Mm. And I'm about to introduce the concept of fake it till you make it. Because (laughs) I was like, it's not that other people know more than you. It's just that they're lying and you're being honest. And so (laughs) that you also know as much and just make up something, but you know, just kind of this and then be okay if it's wrong. That's the other, or they do know it and they doubt it. Exactly. Like like, learn it out and be okay. It might not be a hundred percent right. And I'm not willing to take that risk. Whereas Mm -hmm. they over there is like, whatever, you know, throwing it out there. But Anyway, this is just a really interesting concept I happen to have been thinking about this week with my own kiddos. Mm. Yeah, you know, there's um, there's a technique that I teach particularly around imposter syndrome, and that is visualization. So Olympic athletes, uh, they often, their coaches have them visualize them performing in whatever event in the Olympics that they're doing. And studies have shown that the activity in the brain that happens during the visualization exactly matches the activity in the brain when they are in the real thing, Hmm. right? So your thing on fake it till you make it Mm is because then your brain is functioning as if you are that thing, you are doing that thing. Uh Uh-huh. Amazing. See, there's this guy, I don't know if y'all follow Jesse Itzler. It's, um, Sarah Blakely, who founded Spanx, her husband, and he's like super hardcore athlete. I mean, he's just a really cool guy to follow, but that's one of the things he always talks about. He's like, I haven't trained for this race, but I've already seen myself at the finish line. So Uh I'm just going to do it because I know I'm there. Uh That's an interesting concept to me. Mm. Yeah. 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 That is really interesting. So Z, I wanted to know what has been, um, their response so far like you would meet with a group maybe one time or maybe you meet with them repeatedly i'm guessing there's some bonding that might take place like do you keep in touch with the groups or do they kind of create a a network for each other at work after the fact maybe more so but but what have they what has the aftermath been like Yeah. So typically I'll partner with an employee resource group. So they already have a community, like it's a standing organization within a company. So they already have relationships with each other. Mm -hmm. Um, When I come and do a workshop for an employee resource group, whether that is, you know, the differently abled like today or a black, you know, black ERG is the HR term, employee resource group. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, what happens afterward, well, even during people are very engaged and like, they'll be like, oh my God, this so timely. Like um, the other day, last week, um, I talked about people getting called the wrong name. And this woman said, she wrote me an email afterwards and said, oh my God, twice in the same day before your workshop, twice I got called the wrong name in emails. Twice in one day, the same day where I'm teaching breathwork techniques. And so I'll say that people are finding the tools really, really helpful. Also, often people will write me afterwards and say, I didn't realize I was holding so much tension in my body, you know, because we just operate like our norm is to be tense. Our norm is for our yeah. shoulders to be up. Some people don't even know that their shoulders are up all the time. Right. Um, so, so yeah, I'd say lots of like appreciation. Um, but also I give them a toolkit afterwards. So it's like a take home with like directions. Um, and I'm also in the process of creating um, an online course that has really short videos. So it's like, Oh, anxiety, that one, I'm going to watch that video. Or it's like, mm-hmm. oh, today was a microaggression day and I have anger. So I'm going to do that technique. So I'm in the process of, um, developing that. Um, but in the meantime, I do provide these toolkits and people do come to me afterwards, either wanting clarification or they want to figure out how they can take it to another organization that they're a part of or group that might need it. You know, so maybe I'll do it for the black organization and then they'll say, Oh, actually we want to do it for the Latino one. Mm -hmm. Um, what's also been interesting actually is that, um, some companies have said, 
it's racist for you to have a class just for black people. It's racist because you're being racist against the white people and we are inclusive. Mm -hmm. And so that's also been interesting, mm -hmm. uh, interesting response. And so sometimes they're like, can you teach the broad organization instead? I'm like, I'm happy to. Also, it's not racist to help the people that systemically uh, are set up. Uh, yeah, right. that's, you can't yeah. that sense. Well, um, and I was might need to too. teach those people the definition of racism a little bit. First. Yes, yeah. first of <laughs> all, like, that's, a different, that's a different workshop, people. Right, we need to start with that workshop before you can come to mind. Okay. Um, Let's start with we're not ready for 101 yet. We're going to go back to 100. <laughs> um, I was going to ask along that same line, Z, when you're saying, you know, that's a little bit of resistance. Is there any other type of like resistance that you may come across when you're doing workshops or are people um, pretty much open and uh, receptive? Great question. Well, you know, it's going to be self-selecting, right? Like the people that chose to attend are interested mm. for a reason, right? They're right. interested because they've suffered from microaggressions and they want tools to deal with it. Or maybe they're coming because they tried meditation once and are curious about like more or how to get into it because it's too hard to try to do by yourself, which I'll say mm. it's really hard for me to get started. Um, but, you know, other pushback, I'd, I'd say... Um, perhaps like less so in the workplace, but as I was starting this, I was doing research um, just because uh, I come from, so I don't know if you're familiar with design thinking, um, but I used to work at an innovation and design firm. And so design thinking is like in my blood. And so that is when you really like get to know the humans and like what's in their brain and what are their needs and like why it's not just like, Oh, create a product. It's like, like what, like what do they care about? What do they need? It has a um, big empathy component. Yes. Yeah. And so I did do um, a lot of research talking to um, particularly black women as to the challenges that they face, because a lot of these things, microaggressions, imposter syndrome, et cetera, they happen a lot more to black women of all people of color. Like there are all these studies. In fact, McKinsey and lean in came out with a study last year. Year, um, I think it's called like the state of black women in corporate America or something along those lines. And the stats show that black women, it's way worse for them. They have to prove their comp competence more. They need to provide data. They get doubted more, like all this stuff. Um, so I did research on particularly with black women. And, um, and so it really ranges. I'd say one of the pushbacks that I've gotten is um, those that are very religious. And so one person told me, oh, you know, most people that I know, they would think that this is devil worship and they wouldn't come. Because oh, I was like, yeah. And so I get it. Oh, you know, wow. I, you know, we all come from different religious beliefs. Um, and so I guess I just want to stress that what I do um, is actually not related to any, you know, yes, the meditation um, is used in Buddhism and things like that, but this is totally secular. There is science that shows, you know, they have analyzed the brains of some of these monks. And they mm -hmm. should, right? Yeah. And there's science that shows their heart rate is lower, right? I mean, so, so it's kind of like, okay, devil worship and do you want a heart attack or do I you want never, I, I would have never imagined or made that connection. I mean, like <laughs> yeah, even breathing techniques. I mean, I mean, being from Alabama, I can definitely see people going there. Uh -huh. <laughs> wow. But, but yes, it's not an either or. Like you can, right. I mean, it's, it's just, yeah. that's just a lack of patient. I mean, like that's mm. people coming to it with no knowledge of you know like what you were saying Z of it lowers your blood pressure like monks do this every day you know that's just people who are and fear I feel like a lot of and fear yeah yeah so Z what do you feel like you're able to accomplish either better or clearly when you're able to work with a group of black women that's going to be more successful than maybe the entire business and so in what ways do you feel like that's in particular a benefit? Yeah. So while people want me to work with an entire organization and I'm happy to, the theme is different. Like I'm not going to teach a whole organization about microaggressions when it only applies to 5% of them. Right. Uh -huh. um, but I will say that, that when companies invest in black women, in black people, in Latin X, like in their, you know, underrepresented groups, what they will experience is 
higher retention rates. You know, I taught at a leadership um, conference a retreat last weekend and um, for black professionals and a couple of women came up to me and they work for a very large aerospace company that I will not name because I'm not trying to call people out. Um, however, they said to me, oh my gosh, we need you at our company. Eight women quit last year. Eight black women quit. Eight. And this is an aerospace company, y'all. Do you know how many black people they have there? <laughs> they probably had 10. Man, I was going to say, that. they all quit. Through with me. Yeah. And so oh. what you find is increased retention rates because people yeah. will be able to deal with the, excuse my language, full something. You can say um, it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. That's, that's crazy. I, I, I do have a question, though, because I wonder... Is there a bigger, or excuse me, not a bigger, but is there a benefit to still doing the microaggression training with the broader company? Because the people who are perpetrating the microaggression also need to be aware, maybe, that mm -hmm. they're doing it. I, I just have, like, again, like, intention versus impact. Like, the, the microaggressions are sometimes not coming from um, a place of, you know, negativity or wanting to demean someone that is the impact though. And so just even educating people in the broader organization of what that is and what it does. For yeah. So, um, there are a ton of classes for white people and for the broader <laughs> population to inform mm -hmm. them about microaggressions. They usually come with the title implicit bias. So, and there, you know, or mm -hmm. diversity training or inclusive leadership, right? Like there yeah. are, cannot tell you how many there are. I actually have a white friend of mine who recently was like, you know, I just really think that you need to make these classes for white people. And I was like, mm -hmm. I hear you, and there are a ton already out there. In mm. fact, they are all over the companies. They are, they are on the internet. They are, you know, if you're an individual, there are books out there. But how much is out there that's for black people to deal with? Mm -hmm. right. I'm going to go with zero, or very few, not zero, but very, very few. Mm -hmm. um, let me ask you a question, Tuzi. So does any part of your workshop help black women, not only with how do I process and come out on the other side of a microaggression, you know, still me, still whole, but also how might they advocate for themselves, you know? So you get called the wrong name and are just like, oh, it's actually Z, you know, it's actually Michelle, whatever. Or is there a component where they are now saying like, by the way, it bugs me when you call me the wrong name and I wish you would learn my name, mm. you know? Um, yeah. I'm just wondering if it's cause you know, it just feels mm. like here's a, here's a way for you to process. And I, and I love this because it's also, it is a way of advocating for yourself, right? Cause you're kind of empowering yourself so that you're not going to let these things bring you down. But that's just in terms of a very literal sense of advocating for oneself. You mean like in, internally focused versus what to react with? Yes. Like, is it more about healing, but also advocating? I mean, like to break it down is what you're saying, like to speak out or just to like, let it go. So yeah. I think that it is a personal choice how you engage. And I think that might be different based on the circumstances and the consequences, right? Like your yeah. boss versus somebody that reports to you versus a peer, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I guess in answer to your question, I will share what are the um, classes in my four-part series. So right. the first one is mindfulness to heal from microaggressions at work. That's what mostly we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. My second one is called countering imposter syndrome with courage. Now, and we talked a little bit about imposter syndrome, but if you mm -hmm. think about it, these tools that I teach are to build confidence. And so if you feel confident within mm -hmm. yourself, then from that confident self, you can decide how to engage depending on the circumstance, the consequences, et cetera. Like, I can't tell you that at all moments, Michelle, if I said what I thought to the police officers, I might be beaten. Like if I said what I really felt, Mm -hmm. Right. And I did say it a little bit, but I was like super nice because I didn't mm -hmm. get hurt. Right. right. Um, so, so that's the second class. The third one is 
bringing my whole self to work, right? And we talked a little bit earlier about these authentic leadership classes where a white person tells you that you should bring your whole self to work and you're like, you don't understand, I can't. Mm-hmm. I have to give myself for survival. And so also bringing my whole self to work, there are a lot of tools and techniques to then make you feel good about who you are, love yourself. And if you love yourself, you're gonna speak up mm-hmm. because you know that you're worthy. Mm-hmm. And then the last one in the series, is called rejuvenation from black fatigue. So I don't know if you're familiar with the term black fatigue. There's actually a book called black fatigue. And at the end of the day, it's what it sounds like. It's exhausting to be black. Mm-hmm. It is just exhausting if constantly you're dealing with all these forces, right? And so this is how to refill your cup and really like get energy in your day, especially in moments when you are exhausted. Um, And so again, if you're tired, you're not going to speak up. But if you're energetic and your cup is full and then you're confident and you're bringing your whole self and being yourself and you think you're worthy, you're going to speak up. But Mm -hmm. I don't tell people to speak up. I think that's their choice. Okay. Yeah. I like that because, you know, um, in some of our training that we've done, which I, I mean, I really have tremendously enjoyed, but parts of it, I'm like, we're just really assuming other people are emotionally intelligent. And I think we're, <laughs> I think we're overestimating that because like you said, it's not the intent of like, okay, I'm going to walk down the hall and see who I can like insult today. Yeah. It's simply, I didn't, I did not think about the impact of my words or touching somebody's hair or getting their name wrong or saying, something like we didn't hire you just because you're black. Um, and in those instances, of course, you know, people in our groups were like, I wish somebody had told me, you know, like I, I just wasn't even thinking I had no idea. But if they said like, Hey, um, here's why that bothers me. Then they would, they, they said they would feel remorse and know not to do that again. So I'm shaking my head. I'm yeah. Shaking. Head. The reason I'm shaking my head is because we have to walk on eggshells when we tell you that you're being racist. So um, I've been called an angry black woman. Do you know how many black people I have heard, especially black women, that they've been called angry black women, especially in performance reviews? And then if you tell something like that boss that said, I didn't hire you because you're black, it took me a year and a half to tell him that he said that and Mm -hmm. what the impact was on me. And the reason is because I wanted him to feel comfortable with me. I wanted him to feel like he could trust me and be himself and not walk on eggshells. And so I needed to develop that rapport and trust first so that he didn't feel like I was attacking him because I have Mm -hmm. to tell you that you tell somebody that they're being racist or you're not even you don't even use the word racist but you just like, make the comment they immediately go to defensive mode yeah hack counter attack mode they're like that's not me i'm not and it's just like and it and, and they get triggered mm. and perhaps this is back to you know the point earlier about generational yeah. trauma yeah on the other side then they're like oh shit i'm like you know, guilty by association with my, my great grandfather slave owner, right? Like Mm. there's so many things that come up that are unaddressed. And so it's hard to say, and I know that people say, oh, but I just wish they had told me, but actually Mm. I've been using white colleagues as spokespeople, because if a white person tells another white person that they were being racist, they, they like hear it more oh. hear it from a black person. Suddenly it's like defensive, offensive. It's yeah. awful. And I hate being that person. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, you know, somebody, um, I was talking about, what was it? Oh, I was talking about um, this incident that occurred at UVA where there, the lawn is kind of the sacred place. It's a big privilege to live on the lawn, right? You apply, you get selected. It is kind of, you know, the essence of the UVA fourth years that get to live on the lawn. And so this past year, um, a few residents of the lawn had posted signs on their door that said F-U-C-K UVA and a long list of you know, slavery was one of them. Um, and gosh, I should remember the other ones, but they were, you know, a long list of things that they did not like about UVA and UVA's history. 
So it was so interesting because amongst alumni, some were like, well, I'm not taking my child to the line to see that, you know, they can't walk down the line looking at the rotunda and see these signs. And a friend of mine said, honestly, it doesn't matter what people do. White people will always be offended by whatever form of the protest is. Like if it was mm. a peaceful protest, if it is a riot, if it is literally putting a sign on your door, that white people will always be like, oh, well, you could have you could have done something different. Um, and I was like, that's so true. It does like I don't know what mm. to your point, like you have to walk on. What's a good way? What's a good then. way to say that? Yeah. Right, right. Um and anyway, it just really got me thinking. I was like, so um, true. it doesn't matter. Yeah, I, uh, I wanted to share with you uh, what it was like to watch the Harriet Tubman movie in Colorado. So I've just been on like serious culture shock living in Colorado for these yeah, years. So How long have you been there, Z? Two years, two years. Two, okay. Yeah, so I, um, I went to see the Harriet Tubman movie. <laughs> and, um, and as uh, I was walking out, I heard a white woman say, I mean, it was really good, but like, I just didn't need to, like, I feel bad for them. Like, I feel bad, but like, I didn't need to see that. Like, I didn't, I didn't need to see that. Like, I just didn't, you know, like, and so. I didn't need to be a part of history. Oh boy. Uh -huh. <laughs> but, like, I, I didn't need to see the truth. Bubble. Yeah. Like, yeah. I right. would be comfortable. And that's similar to the UVA story, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, I don't want to yeah, see yeah. that. I don't want to hear that. And, mm -hmm. and it's like, okay, well. Gosh, back to this whole my rain thing and, and the recognize and allow. Well, they're not recognizing what they're feeling and they're just, yeah. right? right? Right. Right. Makes them feel uncomfortable, but they don't understand why. Right. Yes. Mm. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. So um, this doesn't really have to do with, I mean, you were just talking about Colorado and it's not really a part of the practice, but you know, you mentioned how, um, undiverse uh colorado <laughs> so i'm just curious like what for someone who is kind of interested in um you know giving more tools to people of color what what kind of drew you to that space um what what drew you to that geographical space you know, I didn't move to Colorado saying I want to teach mindfulness to black people. <laughs> just, um, so I was on a quest for my own healing because I had a lot of challenges in my life. And, um, and so for me, nature, right. healing, like I feel, oh my gosh, I was teaching a class today and I asked this question, what restores your soul? Mm -hmm. and, and I have a writing prompt that's, I feel restored when, okay? And my answer to that question is, I feel restored when I am in nature. And so, and it's funny because like, I didn't even, I went on my first hike when I was 26, okay? Mm -hmm. I grew up in Washington, D.C., concrete jungle. That was it, you know? And, um, and I find so much healing being in nature. So Colorado is beautiful. The mountains are just majestic. The trees, the air, and, and just easy access to nature. I'm also a rock climber, um, and yeah. I'm a supporter. So, and in San Francisco, um, the type of climbing that I do, like the, the awesome place to go that's closest is like a five and a half to six hour drive. Mm -hmm. um, and in Denver, it's a 20 minute drive. Right. Um, so like yeah. I could go in the morning. It's not like a four day trip. Um, so that, and also snowboarding as well like you know it's an hour mm -hmm. and a half to the closest mountain and it's like amazing skiing so mm -hmm. um i would say nature and and it's nature called own healing yeah. yeah yeah oh that's me too i love nature so much um well and i would think especially now with covid i mean the the capabilities that we've all found through remote um, interaction with people all across the world, even, you know, it doesn't, you don't have to be in person anymore and we're finding new ways to interact with people. I'm sure that that's helped as well. Totally. All of my classes are virtual. Um, well, not all. I did teach one in person with masks and COVID tests and temperature checks. Um, I was like, yes, I'll do this because I love y'all, but what a COVID yeah, precaution. Yeah. All the hurdles. 
Um, so, so yeah, so my classes, especially all the ones with companies are virtual and it's actually helpful yeah. for them because they have so few black people that those black people to put them together have to be online because they're in different locations. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Do you find that this is, um, this just came to mind. Do you find that there are certain industries that are more open to this or seeking this out more than others? You know, I, I, um, it's too early for me to make um, industry generalizations. I guess I will share with you that there has been strong interest in the tech industry um, just because I think that the um, experiences are just so much worse because of the numbers. Like, they're mm. like, so like this concept of being the only um, and the yeah. way they're treated is just like so much worse. And even especially like just so male dominated, like first it's male dominated. And then secondly, um, you know, the, the racial uh, representation, um, it has a lot to be desired. Um, but I wouldn't say that it's just tech, right? And I'm, as I said, I'm pretty early, but like I have a large retailer um, that I'm doing a workshop for. Um, tomorrow actually. And, okay. um, and so, so it's really across the board, you know, um, I'm, I'm yet to do one for financial services, which I, and I don't know, and, and, and I don't know whether it's just, you know, maybe it's like who, you know, and how things happen. Um, but having worked in financial services, um, back in the day, um, I, I know that financial services used to be what tech is like, like in terms of male dominated. Um, and so we'll, you know, we, we'll see, but I, I haven't seen any trends. It's too early to say. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Awesome. Um, well, Z, we've taken up a good chunk of your late afternoon over in Denver. So um, I wanted to thank you for this time. And this was amazing. I have a whole page of notes right here. Mm -hmm. um, Same. We talked about today. And I think I'm going to be thinking the rest of the evening, just kind of processing and turning this over. But thanks so much for taking this time and talking with us. And just want to remind listeners that if you would like to learn more about Reclaiming Flow and Z, you can visit her website, reclaimingflow.com. And that is also a good way to contact you just in case somebody knows somebody that might enjoy these, um, these workshops, which I feel like a lot of people will. We'll Financial services. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, thank you so much for having me and for um, sharing your experiences. You guys ask great questions. Um, what, what a, a wonderful fun. conversation. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. Great. All, All right. right. And then we will um, just kind of wrap it up. Julie? <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> Wait, you know, scene. And scene. Yes. <laughs> No, that was a great conversation. The, I mean, so many um, just nuggets of information, just wealth of information that we can just apply to our everyday lives. I've written down at least three things that I'm going to do right away. Um, at least three things that I can do with my own children um, and things that we never thought about and how that affects flow. I think that was the big aha moment, especially for me. So thank you so much for your time and thank you for what you're doing. I mean, we need more Z's in the world doing what you're doing. <laughs> well, it feels good doing it. Um, and so I'm, I'm excited um, for more people to feel better. Amen to that. More healing. All right, guys. Until next time. Thanks, Z. Thanks, Julie. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a review. And if you have any ideas for future speakers or topics, feel free to email us at commonspacepodcast at gmail.com or send us a message on our creatively named Instagram, commonspacepodcast. Thanks.